In Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And in VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Tim McCurdy. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Tim, another week. You double dip it on podcasts. I want you to spend a moment before we get into what we've been drinking this week. Just, I have to discuss a recent Cocktail College episode with you because it was fascinating to me. Um, you had on John from uh, Shinji's talking about sort of you do your your sort of technique episodes, which are I think fun little interludes between the the focuses on classic cocktails or just cocktails, not just classics, of course. And I will admit, have you ever heard of a more kind of like like the I don't want to say elaborate isn't exactly the right word. Like you've had people on before who do a lot of work uh, to prep their cocktails. I don't know if anything I've heard on the podcast has equaled what they do at Shinji's to get their drinks ready. Is that was that your vibe too? Yeah, definitely. I think a parallel a parallel could be made with um, the former bars here that we had um, existing conditions um, and Booker and Dax, which was the previous iteration of that bar. And people like Dave Arnold, like I think they yeah. do. But I was actually speaking with John about this. I think it might have been after. And he actually considers what he does to be very different to what they're doing. And I find that interesting because, uh, you know, just for context, these are bars that do a lot of preparation of ingredients and maybe make a lot of things themselves or infuse their ingredients with things. Um, I certainly think that existing conditions was maybe a little bit more technique driven when it came to like carbonation and clarification and things like that and the kind of mad scientist thing uh their drinks were delicious and you know that bar is no longer around so definitely currently in the new york landscape at least i can't speak for the whole country i don't think i've come across a bar that's doing more kind of behind the scenes and for the ingredients that go into your cocktails and it's so interesting because i I think sometimes about how a bar in particular has to kind of, well, doesn't have to, but perhaps should think about striking a balance between the work that is unseen or even a restaurant. Frankly, this is maybe even better in some ways to think about in terms of, of a culinary perspective, kind of like on the one hand, you don't ever really want the guest to know just how much work goes into anything that comes in front of them. I mean, part of the the beauty of of going out is that it seems you know, somewhat effortless, um, whether or not it is. But at the same time, like, I almost think, and again, this is just from hearing you talk about it mostly, that there, you almost run the risk if you make it look too effortless, that it's hard to then explain the, you know, explain the price point to people. Because obviously, Shinji is a very high price point for cocktails. Is that something that, that you talked to John about? Yeah, definitely. And And I got the sense from John too, as well, that he tries to kind of judge it on a guess-by-guess basis, right? Like, he spoke about in the podcast episode that there are certain guests that will come in and have maybe seen the bar on TikTok and want to get the video of throwing liquid nitrogen at the wall, which is sadly something they no longer do. So (laughs) if you didn't get that video, you won't be able to anymore. But, you know, or just the preparation, the table-side preparation, right? Like, people are interested in capturing that and... That's something they're paying for. But if a guest starts saying to John, oh, you know, how is your Vesper slightly different here? Or tell me a little bit more about the gin that's in this or the vodka or, you know, the technique you're using. He will use that and and he will run with it. But I think he doesn't want to assume that every single person who comes in wants to hear all the work that goes behind it because 
at the end of the day, it's a dance when it comes to hospitality, right? And he doesn't want to intrude on those guests' um, experience. But to your point, it, it's, it is difficult or it's dangerous isn't the right word but you know what i mean you run a risk when the cocktails are that high like if you don't explain the work behind them somewhat it can be difficult yeah i think yeah and especially when i think you know the the you know as simple as this is when you are at the when you're sitting at a bar and you watch the bartender grab 11 different bottles and pour them together to make a cocktail you kind of just intrinsically are like i get where why this drink is 20 bucks regardless of what's in those 20 those 11 bottles yeah but when you see it be just a thing poured from a bottle you kind of are like oh okay or could, some people might feel that way and and so yeah it just was interesting to me I, I was struck when thinking about that or listening to that and thinking about that and wanted a little bit behind the scenes um and, and i guess on the the topic of well the whole podcast is on the topic of drinking <laughs> tim what what have you had lately that uh that stuck with you yeah, and and just I guess running with that kind of price front for a second too. So um, I wanted to highlight a, a, a meal that I was lucky enough to be invited to last night that was really fun, and I think is an interesting concept that they're doing. But before that, I you know I stopped. I, I was early, so I stopped at a nearby bar and had a martini. Something I genuinely generally enjoy is having a drink on my own at times, right? And just sitting at the bar. It's a very yeah. American thing. Um, and it was a Tanqueray martini very average and it cost me with tip $27 and this wasn't Oof. a notable bar so while the Shinji's conversation we're talking about price there that has literally just become the norm in New York like as long as if you're tipping like a good person you're pretty much paying 25 bucks for a cocktail these days which is kind of crazy but that's the state of affairs um but anyway yeah I wanted to highlight so um down at cathedral uh which is part of the moxie hotel here in on east 11th street in new york um i was invited by the team there to join for this babette feast they were doing or this feast that was inspired by the danish movie babette's feast if you've not seen it anyone go out especially if you're a food lover i think you'll love that film uh just it's also goes in very different directions too so check it out it's something of a classic i guess for some people uh, it is matt strauss the manager over there it was his fav- favorite film so he wanted to do an evening that was inspired by the food in that film and there was four courses and it was very classically french and this is the first time in a long time zach where i've done like a food pairing meal right like it, okay. it's it i can't remember the last time i did it before that it's something i find very fun to do and uh, among some, you know, we had some delicious burgundy, uh, finished with a nice cognac. But the first one, this was a new pairing for me, and I'm not sure if I'll ever get it again, but I found it to be delicious. Lostau Amontillado Sherry paired with turtle soup. Oh. Hmm. And I, it's my understanding that, that, that it was all above board on the turtle front. I don't know where the legality is, but it's all above board there. Uh, it was the first time I've ever had turtle soup. And yeah. that combo just really was something phenomenal. So, yeah, I wanted to shout that out, say thanks to those guys for, for, for having me down. But also just like, yeah, if you're wondering that that very common question of what to pair with turtle soup, turns out the answer is Amontillado Sherry. <laughs> that is by the way for listeners what to pair with turtle soup is the by far the number one uh question we get uh on the site <laughs> so you know tim really some service journalism here thank you 
No, I cannot claim I have ever had uh, turtle soups or turtle anything. So I was I was surprised I was the only one at the table who hadn't had it before. But yeah, I guess I just think the other final thing I wanted to say about that meal was like, I'd be really interested. I don't know whether they're thinking of doing that as a series or whether anyone else has done this or would like to do it. But we've spoken about this before. You know, I'm a big movie fan, too. So I'd love to go to more dinners that are inspired by movies i think that's i don't know it's kind of fun yeah if you get it right it could be great i think i think it can you know can tip over into kind of uh a sort of kitschy space pretty easily yeah sure anyhow yeah so um my drinking has been uh pretty boring lately honestly like as everyone who listens regularly knows i was sick last the previous week nah, shockingly the rest of my family has gotten sick so it's been kind of like uh low-key trying to just kind of keep things vaguely on the rails at home, which means that like my drinking is reserved for when the children are asleep, which is kind of the case normally, but usually there's wine with dinner a couple of nights a week at least and some other things. So, but you know, that means that when I drink at night, it's usually like whiskey neat, maybe Amaro, maybe both, all of which are things I love. Of course, I'm not suffering on that front, but I will say that the, the only really kind of intriguing, interesting thing beyond that that i've had recently is so you'll appreciate this tim again because it's a thing that comes up on on cocktail college with some regularity and we actually kind of were touching on it with friday's episode talking about some na cocktail stuff was because i i have gotten myself more interested in this general category of drink making and i'm working on some projects here that are that will require some bartending i have been working on sort of building a variety of different you know, syrups and playing with flavors and things like that. And so one of my favorites, which I've talked about on the pod before, is making my own grenadine, which is, you know, generally pretty simple. If you have pomegranate, it's basically just a pomegranate syrup, which you can spice and add other things to, et cetera, but, but functionally just that. And so having some success with that really has kind of emboldened me. And I've been making a lot of strawberry syrups and been sort of playing around with, okay, what can I do with besides just strawberry? So I made a strawberry rhubarb, which we discussed last week, uh, which was quite nice, goes really beautifully with gin, unsurprisingly. Mm. And then I was like, okay, well, what's another direction I can take strawberry? And so I made a strawberry balsamic syrup that I got to say, like, just that and some soda water is freaking delicious. And it's a really interesting cocktail ingredient. The The balsamic note is a little tricky to pair, I've found. Like, if you hit it right with the right whiskey, I think it works really well. But sort of interestingly, the best pairing I've found with it is actually cognac. I think there's something about the sort of vinous nature of cognac that works with the like vinegary note of the balsamic. So, yeah, I'm just sort of playing around with it. I don't have like a full-on cocktail mapped out in my head yet, but uh, it's been an interesting one to to toy with. Unfortunately, the one downside is that whereas like the straight strawberry syrup is a beautiful color, the strawberry balsamic syrup is um, <clears throat> a little less visually appealing. <laughs> yeah, that's a tricky one. So, yeah. Anyhow. Sounds delicious, um, though. Yeah, I'll report back. I'm sure I'll find, uh, I'll, I'll hit on one or two things that uh, that really work with it, because it, it, the, the syrup itself is so tasty that I find it hard to believe that I can't find a, a really enjoyable application. Hey, maybe it might inspire the next uh, modern classic, or the first modern classic non-alcoholic cocktail. Uh, who knows? <laughs> you never know. From, from my home bar to uh, the world, who knows? <laughs> Anyhow, for the episode today, we got a really great question. Again, we love it when we hear from 
you folks out there who listen, podcast at vinepair.com. This is uh, from listener Kyle who wrote in and sort of said basically, I'm going to, I'm actually going to quote him here, uh, a little sentence or two here from his email. So he says basically, uh, with the growing pressure of operating costs on restaurants, the expectation of restaurants always being a place to give free or discounted product away. And he's really referring to friends, to other people in the industry, et cetera, uh, weighs heavily at the end of the day. Is, is it still a valid assumption that industry friends and stuff should expect to receive a discount or free product? Or are we at a point where that's just too onerous on businesses? And I think this is a great question. I want to also talk about it after we kind of discuss Kyle's specific question. I want you and I to talk a little, Tim, about our own feelings on receiving free, you know, free drinks and things like that when we're out in our capacity as media members, as journalists, because I think that's also interesting and, and worth us talking about for our audience's sake. But but to the first point as the sort of, you know, the sort of nebulous free drinks for industry members or industry discounts and stuff like that. Do you have an immediate kind of response to Kyle here? Yeah, I think it's a really great question. And yeah, thanks a lot to Kyle for, for writing in and, and, and posing that for us. I think my first thought on this topic is that recently, I, I, and I don't know, I'd love to get your take of this is, you know, very common, Zach, but recently I learned that bars, most bars maybe, will have a tab in their whatever their system and an amount where all the free drinks they give away is rung up and basically like they will have a budget for the month this is how many drinks we can comp this month whether that is to industry friends or maybe employees that work there or um perhaps media or whatever right they will have a set total for the month so they will budget for it and i think that's the way if you're going to do it I think that's the way you have to do it, right? Like this is product. You have questions of inventory at the end of the month. And like, this is a business that you're running. So like, you can't just be giving out free drinks and not running it through the system, right? Is that is that very common? Because I've never worked behind a bar or in a, in a customer-facing role in hospitality. Is that sort of the, in the, the industry standard there? So I think there are a few different uh, possible solutions to this. The one you described, Tim, is definitely one that I've heard of before. I've actually never worked somewhere that had sort of a just a set budget for the week or month or whatever, or even a shift. Most of the places I worked had either a sort of basic policy that was like, here are the circumstances and under which it's acceptable for you to comp a drink or discount a drink or whatever, or or food or whatever, and and or just sort of a more of a policy of you got to run it by your manager or whoever is in charge. You know, you can say, oh, you know, so-and-so works at the bar down the street. Can we comp their their drink or can we get by, you know, send them a, a free appetizer or whatever. And then often had a, had sort of a more standardized policy for employees of the restaurant or restaurant company or whatever. But I agree that like from a business best practices standpoint, you definitely should account for those things. Like there are a lot of, reasons why that's very important to do inventory being one of them and just general accounting and and also frankly so that you know the the proprietor the operator the managers etc have an idea for how much free product is actually going across the bar or going out through the kitchen or whatever because you know it, it can pretty quickly get into a bad space and so setting all of the sort of accounting aside specifically i think part of kyle's question here too that's worth noting is kind of is it fair is it right is it appropriate for industry members, et cetera, to walk into any bar, any restaurant and expect 
a kind of special treatment, free drinks, discounted drinks, etc., just by virtue of being in the industry. Like, uh, and that to me, I think is a a really interesting thing to dig into because I think I have definitely encountered that on all sides. I've been the person out somewhere who is in the industry and is going to a place where I know the, some of the people who work there. And like, I'll be candid, definitely hoped slash expected that I'd get, you know, some kind of preferential treatment. I think it is one of the things that's considered by a lot of people who work in the restaurant and bar industry as sort of a perk of the job. Yeah. You might work shitty hours. Yeah. You might not make a whole lot of money in some cases, but you're going to kind of be a, in the quote unquote industry and thus get perks from it. Like, discounted drinks, free drinks, free food, etc. But at the same time, as a person who's, you know, working, you also have to kind of, you know, you have to balance those things, right? You know, it, it, it's, it's a, it's always a little touchy and, you know, you never want, I think it's always, you know, at least in my experience, I certainly always tried to be, uh, to not expect too much, to be gracious, to understand if, and when, you know, it was like, Hey, that you, you came in and you ordered these things, you have to pay for them. Because <laughs> in the end, that's the, the reality with bars and restaurants. You know, you should order, you pay what you order for. And often where the perks would come would be, you know, extra little freebies, right? You get a little extra course when you're dining out or someone, you know, pours you a little taste of something that they might not have poured for other people at the bar. All those kind of things that are are nice and are not even exclusive to just people in the industry. Sometimes they're things that are given out to guests who are cool for lack of a better word that the the bartender or the server whomever wants to kind of toss a little reward to so i don't know like as someone who's who you know you worked in the restaurant industry but you know maybe not in a while like what is your do you think that that's a, a fair stance yeah i think that's very reasonable i mean we're talking about the hospitality industry here right and the very nature of hospitality is those little gestures going above and beyond whether that is, like you said, for just a, a random guest who's cool or maybe they're celebrating something right or whether it's for someone who's in the industry. To your point, I do think that this is one of the perks of working in the industry. It feels good, as you say, to walk in somewhere where they know you and maybe be greeted by something small, right? I, it, it's a really nice touch and it's honestly... When if I don't actually, I'll avoid the economics for a second here. I so I want to say I I agree with you too, with the caveat that it's on the individual who's on the receiving end to be respectful and um to not take the piss right to and to be a good guess and also like not to overdo it. Like if you go into a bar every night after your shift, maybe. Maybe don't expect that you're going to get a free drink every night. Maybe it's one every other night or whatever, right? Do you know what I mean? Like on random occasions, like don't expect it and be respectful of the people there. But I do think that things like this, practices like this are why we talk about a bar te- or bar and restaurant community, right? So there's yes. that camaraderie there between people from different establishments and that helps build community. I think you're right that the, the community part of it is both a a really 
important part for me was a big important part of, of working in the restaurant industry when I did, uh, you know, that sense of uh, esprit de corps. And the fact that you also realize like people move around in restaurants a lot, bars a lot. You never know when you might be working with someone, when they might be working with you, um, you know, to say nothing of what you might, what might have happened in the past. And obviously that's a just general reason to try and treat people well, generally, of course, but also like, yeah, you just never know when someone's going to pop up wherever. So I, I do think that places, I think most bars and restaurants should have some kind of, you know, whether it's even just a 15 or 20% discount, whether it's a kind of a, a un, somewhat unspoken policy that like, yeah, you know, you can take care of your industry friends, etc. Um, because that thing do, that does foster just a kind of good, good vibes, right in in the space in the community that is shared, etc. I think the piece that I want to also talk about, as I mentioned at the top, is, you know, for you and me now being in this role more as as journalists and as media members than as people working directly in the food and beverage industry, I do think it's become a little bit more, I'm not sure personally how to navigate sometimes the world of of, you know, a proffered free drink. Now, to be clear, for me, most of the time this happens when I'm like at a friend's bar and I, you know, also don't function in a, I'm not a, I don't review bars. I don't really write about bars. I'm not here to necessarily publicize or do anything untoward. I don't really talk much on here even about places I go because, again, as has been noted many times on this podcast, I have kids and go nowhere. And so I am like the least useful influencer in that space possible. Uh, but it does, you know, there's a question of, of sort of journalistic ethics and just to sort of like, what does it mean to get a free drink when you are someone who has some relation to this industry that's not directly in it? And I'm curious your thoughts on this, Tim. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and, and something, I mean, something that's probably been as old as time in the, in the, you know, editorial field, but definitely more and more these days, this question of journalistic ethics and, at what point you need to maybe highlight that you had received a free drink somewhere. Maybe at this point I should be saying, yeah, that, you know, I was kind enough to be on the receiving end of that meal last night, right? I was invited down as someone from the media, but it was a public event in the Republic there. Um, yeah, like whether if it's in a story or if we're talking about things on a podcast, like do you, should you mention that these things were free I mean, I think it's a case-by-case scenario, but ultimately, as a journalist, you have to be true to yourself and have ethics yourself, right? So you're saying, say, for example, you're talking about a bar or a drink, like, or you're reviewing something, right? You need to make sure that the reason you're including a bar in a roundup is because you genuinely think it's good, regardless of whether you've ever had free drinks there or not, right? Like, you cannot use this profession. And I'm sorry to say, like, it does happen. I I see it very, very frequently where people use their profession and their title basically just as a way of bankrolling their life when it comes to eating out and drinking out all the time. Like, it's it's shocking. Um, For myself as a journalist, this speaks to kind of the economics thing I want to mention earlier too, but like, yeah, I, I, I think that A, when it comes to looking at a bar and judging a bar properly, I want to go in of my own accord and I don't want the bar to know like that I'm in it. And eventually, I I hope we'll get to chatting and they'll soon maybe realize that, you know, we're in a tangential industry. 
But then otherwise, if I am, if I have been invited to a bar to check it out, maybe by their PR team or maybe I know them, and there's an understanding that they're, they're going to comp the drinks, I'm basically going to spend the same amount of money and leave it as a tip. So like yeah. someone there is getting that money. No one's being done out of you know their wage. And I'm hoping too that again, maybe they do have that system where they've budgeted for this. So they're, they're like, we are able to take care of that. But yeah, I think you have to urge people like, if you get a free drink, still tip on it. If anything, tip double, triple what you would have done for the bill so that, you know, it, the, the cost is kind of being made up there. Exactly. And I think, you know, we have a tipping episode on deck, so we will we'll save that sort of broader yes. conversation for, for down the road. But I do think that there is an element of it's to me, it's it's you made a, a lot of really good points, Tim. I mean, I think the idea of obviously, you know, not letting whatever you might get free or discounted affect sort of how you what you choose to highlight or or how you would talk about a, an establishment or a drink or a product or whatever. But there are two other bits of economics that I think have to be considered that, you know, frankly, in the conversation around journalistic ethics don't always get talked about. And one of them is that the reality is that, like, whether you're a freelancer or staff on a, at a publication, you know, budgets are finite. These jobs are have a lot of nice things about them. They don't necessarily pay incredibly well. And as you just talked about, in a world where your basic tanker and martini costs you 25 bucks, <laughs> there is a limit to what the average writer, podcaster, journalist, whatever, can legitimately afford to pay to provide the kind of uh, assessment of a, of, a, of a venue that they might want to, that their listeners, readers, whatever, might want. And there are a few notable exceptions to this, places that have very deep pockets that can fully bankroll any kind of meal that their reviewer might want to have. They might like have the initials NYT, and like that's great for those establishments and those those uh, companies, and they have very stringent ethics rules in part because they have the money to back them up. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of other publications, a lot of other you know, so again, especially in the freelance world, but even even again for people on staff and things like that, you do have to walk something of a line because a lot of the things in the drink space and the food space are by their nature expensive, and it's not plausible for someone to have you know, to, to go to these places and pay for them fully out of their own pocket, unless they're, I don't know, independently wealthy or have a wealthy partner or something like that. Like in that case, I guess, great. But like, you know, that's not a, that's not the kind of gatekeeping we want to do on this industry and on this uh, and covering the industry. So there is an element of, of push and pull that has to come. Same thing with travel and things like that. Again, where like just budgets are what they are. And, and we live in a media environment where like, cutting costs or keeping costs under control is a priority for a lot of various publications. And that's something that, and again, to say nothing of people who are freelancing who generally don't get expenses paid and things like that. So there's all that. And then there's the last piece of it that I think is important to note too here, which is that all of what I said, I think is true. And yet it remains very important for anyone who's covering this industry to be very keenly attuned to the fact that the experience that you might have as a recognized, comped member of the media may bear almost no resemblance to the experience that a guest has. And if you yourself can't be the person who um, goes in and has that anonymous 
standard experience because you're well-known by the publicity team or you just don't have the money or whatever. There are lots of ways around that. And one of the most interesting ones I've found and that I think is worth uh, kind of looking for is like reaching out to people on social media who post about these places and asking them like, you know, on or off the record, like, what was your experience? Like I have done this a few times when I've seen interesting things posted again, I'm not a reviewer, so I'm not so concerned about getting like an exact assessment of a place, but, but it's always really useful to get that perspective from someone who presumably did pay their own money to have those drinks, have that food, have both, whatever, because again, sometimes you get a very, you know, you get the vision the version put forward by the PR team when you go in there as a member of the media. And that's fine. I don't, they can't, you know, truly hide anything that's horribly off, but it, it may not be representative of what the average person's experience is. And if you can't, again, afford one way or another to have that experience yourself, getting it secondhand is, I think, a good alternative. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's, you know, to your point about asking people, like, whether it's on or off the record, yeah, you know, like, what their experience has been, because there there will become a point where, yeah, if a bar knows you and they know you're in, in the media, you know, and, and, and frankly, if they're smart, because you want the media to think favorably of you, right? Um, they will treat you slightly differently. Like, it shouldn't be the case, but it is. Whenever I speak with other writers, you know, on that topic about like a new bar or somewhere new that's opened, if someone asked me for my opinion, I would generally make it explicitly clear like, oh, I thought it was great, but I was there, I was invited there, or I went there for an event, or I will give my opinion of like, yeah, I went there on my own dime, and it was absolutely incredible. Do you know what I mean? Because there, there is a distinction mm-hmm. there. It reminds me also of an experience that I had recently, which I think something maybe people that run bars that are listening to this might uh, might be useful for too. So I was at somewhere very fancy here in New York at their bar. It's primarily known as a restaurant. And I was there actually with um, Vine Pair's tastings director, Keith Beathers. And um, Keith and I went for a cocktail. And again, this was on our own dime before we were going to a meal. And I posted about it online because it was i i enjoyed the drink and the bar looked great so i posted it on my instagram within 24 hours the place's pr team had reached out and said oh we saw you were there we hope you had a great time we'd love for you to come back and get to know a little bit more about the drinks program and i actually was there again a couple of days later because i had a friend in town and again pr none of them knew i was going but I was already in their system at that point, And I guess they might have put a note on whatever. And the beverage director came over and actually very kindly took care of a round of drinks for us. And so I just thought that was a really classy move. Again, I hadn't told them I was coming because I just wanted to take a friend there that I thought it was cool. But you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I think that's a classy move, A. But B, something that bars should be monitoring, right? Like if they're being tagged in things doing that just that little bit of extra work to be like oh was this someone who could potentially matter in in media or whatever and like how can we follow up can we invite them back and again like i don't know i just like i said i think that's pretty classy and i don't think it's unethical in any way right yeah and i think it would be a good thing for these kind of places to consider with kind of anyone who tags them because you you never know right someone doesn't have to necessarily be on a masthead somewhere 
they and I don't even mean they necessarily have to be a person yeah. with fifty thousand Instagram followers, but it's it's one of those things where like to kind of you know we all know how valuable word of mouth is, and, and obviously word of mouth can spread via lots of means, including social media. And it may be that a person who posts about a drink in a bar has three hundred followers, but those three hundred followers, if five of them show up and have the drink, like that's a big deal for a bar or a restaurant. And so, yeah, I think it's always good, you know, restaurants, I mean, well, I mean, God, a whole other episode, don't have time for it. But mm. yes, I think there's a lot that can be done about finding ways to make that, yeah, to, to make those points of connection, to to have these things be not quite so, I guess, kind of tawdry, mm-hmm. but to be like, a, hey, I see you, I recognize you in the same way that you would, you know, in some of the same way that you might add to come back to the topic of at hand, offer to comp around of drinks for someone who works in a bar restaurant in town or whatever there are ways yeah that you can sort of nod you know tip the hat to someone in on the media side without it being kind of clearly transactional Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and i hope i didn't sound to come across there as being like you know you should only care about the media like yeah you should definitely care about you didn't i just i wanted to just i wanted to just kind of mention that it's a good practice you know across the board social media practices are are a big part of you know the places that do it well, uh, it's very obvious, and it and they have a whether it's in house or someone they've hired or whatever to handle it. Like th- when they are deft, when establishments are deft on social media, they get those things right, along with a lot of other things. So, mm-hmm. anyhow, Tim, fascinating conversation as always, and everyone out there listening, please uh, like Kyle, send us your questions, your prompts, your thoughts. Uh, tell us how right or wrong we are. Podcast at vinepair.com. Always great to hear from you, and Tim. I'll talk to you on Friday. Sounds good. Thanks, Zach. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, However you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair Podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Jabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire VinePair Podcast Network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.